You're listening to Real Life Rave Confessions, a podcast about electronic music, the industry that drives it, the people that participate in it, and the gossip that provokes it. I'm Goucher Lustwork. And I'm Lisa Blanning. Today we welcome John Twells. John Twells is a Wolverhampton-born club creature based mostly in the USA. John has been responsible for editorial at Boomcat and Fact, recorded music under various names, run labels, worked at record stores, fitted bass systems, established and maintained club nights, run radio shows, and been a cog in the underground electronic music machine for two decades. Welcome to Real Life Rave Confessions, Volume 2. We're here with John Twells, who is the currently the editor of Fact Magazine, uh, amongst many other things. Welcome, John. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Welcome. Yes. Thank you. Hi. So today's discussion is largely going to be centered around music journalism. And my first question for you, John, is... In 2019, with the with social media and artists having a direct link to their audiences and a platform, an easily easily available platform at all times, what what do you think is is music journalism still relevant? Was it ever relevant? I think. I mean, so. I, I I mean I. I want it to be relevant, but my, my big problem with music journalism or criticism or whatever, not just music, is that it's it hasn't really been updated for a while. Um, we're, we're still in very sort of old dated models, but we're all consuming culture in a different way than we were 10 years ago, let alone like 50 years ago or whatever. Um, so like... I think it can be useful, like talking about culture and dissecting it and sharing it and um, like highlighting positivity or, or like, uh, you know, like the conversation is really important always, but the way it's been done, the way it's being done, it's changing and people are right to criticize it and right to pick it apart. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, I'd say that that's a, 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 a modern viewpoint, which is refreshing because there's a lot of people who are bemoaning the, the, the death of criticism, the death of, um, outlets, you know, and any lots and lots of, of titles have gone down. Obviously. Yeah. And, that, and that's, I, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's not like, uh, we, we need much, much more people, many, many more people like having the confidence and being empowered to be able to talk about the things that they know about. Uh, not fewer people and, and, and it, it becoming a, a sort of mono view of, uh, of music and, or of film or of television or of books or whatever. Um, we just don't know where it's going and I don't think we've stabilized yet in a in a completely new world like you mentioned social media a lot of people are acting as critics or journalists via social media i don't think this is necessarily a bad thing we just don't know how to uh re replace what's been lost yet right okay so this is um at the, well working in this this period in between uh where where I, I obviously fact is a purely online publication, which did actually start out as a print magazine. 
It did, yeah. So um, it has it, it did make that switch, and I'd say that we're probably that everybody is still is still navigating the the way the internet has has changed media, much less the music industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never worked in editorial for a print magazine, uh, but I my first piece of writing that I ever did was for a print magazine, and that sort of you know, I was a fan of reading music writing, some of it at least, when I was an artist, when I was a DJ and stuff. I, I, I thought it was quite valuable. And then when I became a journalist or whatever or started writing about music, the the magazine system, the, the old system started to collapse and I, I never became a part of that. Um, but I don't see that as a particularly bad thing. I just see it as evolution, like... It's the way, it, you know, things have changed. You can either get mad about it and, and, and whine that you, you weren't a part of something in a different era, or you can look to the future and see what all those things represent and where it's going. And, you know, people aren't going to stop talking about music. True. Okay, <laughs> so how, how long have you been at FACT now? I've been at FACT six years. So what do you think ha- are, are the most significant changes to the way that uh, FACT has operated during that time because you said you never worked on its print title. I didn't, no. So, uh, but I did. so you've only ever been there uh, at, as for its online platform. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been through lots of different stages. You know, when I started at FACT, I was just a news person, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 which, was, which made sense because before that I worked for Boomcat and just – wrote endless reviews of just about everything uh, that came into the office. Um, So I kind of felt like I could just be quick and bash out stuff on call. And news was kind of a good place to do that, I suppose. Um, And then I I, sort of by being there for a while and working on a lot of different things, I ended up going into editorial and and features and all that kind of stuff. Um, And that changed a lot in the focus of, like a few years ago, people wanted more and more news, more and more features. And over the years, it's shifted to more video, um, which I think is industry-wide. Uh, because people are engaging differently and nobody's really sure where it's going. If people are interested in reading, writing about music or if, in you know, like... People will always, always, always say, like, there's not enough writing about music. We're not, you know, it's all disappearing. But people definitely weren't reading a lot of writing about music. And I, I, I don't see that as necessarily a, a massive negative. But we need to find a way to communicate about music and write about music in a, pe- in a way that people want to read about it. <laughs> I think we haven't got there yet. I like that you brought up uh, the video aspect because when I think of facts, um, like the one of the first things that comes to mind is like the Against the Clock series. Um, like I feel like, I mean, if I were just to guess, I would say that that um, like alone your YouTube channel is just as popular as the site itself. Massively. I mean, most yeah. of the people I meet, uh, uh, like city to city, country to country. I would say I meet more people who know against the clock than know the name fact. Yeah, crazy. Um, I mean, do you, how does that like factor into your, you know, your decisions on what to cover on the site or like what to prioritize on like any given day or or 
like how you organize that your team of writers or what not so um i i'm executive editor and i i deal with a lot of the 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 picking of 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 the editorial focus or whatever. And um, the editor-in-chief is Anushka Sigler, who, who uh, came up with um, the, you know, developed the Against the Clock concept and came up with a lot of the video stuff and was very much in charge of, of Fact TV before it just became Fact. Everything okay. was under the same banner. Um, and, you know, I regard the Against the Clock series as incredibly, incredibly useful because it's showing people access into a lot of different ways of making music. Mm-hmm. Um, and my big thing is any anybody can, you know, everybody's an artist. It's just how much you have confidence in yourself and your view of the world. Uh, and this kind of thing where you can see how people are uh, uh, working within their internal worlds and, and, like, translating their experience is really, really vital. And the more people we have doing that, and the more people we have doing that from all different places around the world, like the more people should feel em- empowered to be a part of this because it isn't, in my opinion, a, just a bunch of lofty artists sitting on, um, and on, in an, on an elevated platform and the rest of us just watching in awe. It's something that all of us can get involved in. Um, yeah. You're, so you're, you're thinking of it as a, as a quasi-educational angle. Absolutely, 100%. What I, okay, so my question about about the the video, the turn to video, is do you th- that was that something that you guys did because you felt that's what users or people who visit the site wanted because they were clicking on that quote unquote content more, or was it an editorial led decision? Um, I mean, if it was purely up to me, which it isn't, um, I, I would probably be commissioning more and more writing and more and more sort of quite experimental forms to try and find a way mm-hmm. to connect with people in written word. Uh, but there's, you know, I, I don't make those kind of decisions. And there was more of a push towards video because um, there are a lot of people who think that that works better right now. And it might do. So, that, uh, so it wasn't I'm, necessarily a, a, a numbers based decision. It wasn't necessarily numbers. It was okay. a, 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 some people predicting what they think, how people are engaging or whatever as well, and just prioritizing a different way of communication. Also, the against the clocks, this is actually quite important. It's it, You can engage with those whether you speak English or not. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with a, with a long, wordy, written piece, uh, is it getting to as many people? Is it as useful? I want to think so because I, I do. I, I fell in love with writing after having done it for a long time and not really connected to it. I did in the last few years. I have started to really like it, so I would like to write more. But I don't want to just write in a vacuum either, and and it just be wasting other people's time when it, it, it could be doing something. I could be doing something more useful. I don't know. Well, it does. It does uh, seem as though. Um Writers tend to like the written word, but, um, <laughs> but I'm not a writer. Know, reader, reader, <laughs> you, you say that, but you do a lot of it for someone who isn't a writer. Um, well, I, get paid, I get paid to. I do whatever I'm told. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure, I'm sure that still counts in your in your job description. But I I will make the point that I would say that you probably come from a slightly different perspective than most other traditional music journalists because you also ran a record label and you were a performing artist. You were a touring artist. Yes. Even before you you did anything associated with the press. Yes. 
Yeah. I so mean, that I, would that would automatically give you a, a different perspective, sort of. Yeah, it, it it does. Like, I suppose my my first writing experience was like I, I had a, a GeoCities fan site mm-hmm. dedicated to the Birmingham band Broadcast, mm-hmm. uh, and and like that, I, I was like a massive fan, but also like a musician. I was in bands. I'd, I'd you know played a bunch of instruments and sort of hated it, but loved music, uh, and and then was a touring artist for a long time. <laughs> Uh, worked in the industry in various jobs in like distributors and and record shops and things. So I straddled this like artist and uh, sort of, I, I guess a, a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when when I, I I went into music journalism, I definitely brought with it a lot of experience of of how the industry works, or or like how people are reacting to what we're doing because I was reacting to music journalism as an artist and as a person working in distribution or working in um, record stores so yeah. you get you get a weird kind of like um, playing all the sides kind of thing you know mm-hmm. do, do you um, what do you think about there's to me I would say that there's this historic historical no, not exactly sure I would call it animosity, although sometimes it actually is an, an animosity between critics and artists, or there's a divide, let's say. There is a divide, yeah, because, I mean, and I get it, um, and I felt that. I used to constantly bang on about hating music writers, uh, and, and I felt very strongly that they were frauds. Um, you know, because when you're on the scene a lot and you see people sort of dip in and dip out, and you think how very nice you can dip in, dip your toe in, and then fuck off. It made, <laughs> it, it, it made me quite angry because I, I, I felt kind of the longer I was I was around, I felt more and more destroyed by the industry in various ways. And it was like must be very nice to go home and like switch off because I can't. Um, but over time, I've <laughs> I've got a bit more sensitive to uh, uh, the different lives that people lead and it's not that simple you know well but I do you I, I think I think what you're referring to is this this sort of uh, common complaint that I hear about how um, you know journalists aren't either aren't a part of the scene or don't know or don't have the the correct context in order to comment on a scene or yeah. or meet our type of music or, or whatever which yeah. I suppose is a is a different argument it's a pertinent yeah. argument at the moment um like it what what constitutes expertise mm. um what go 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 oh sorry no go ahead oh. i mean like uh it, i think about it all the time like why am i writing about this why did i choose to um specifically go into writing about this sort of music what does it represent that kind of thing what do i know how does it pertain to my individual experience Certainly as someone who's had experience of being an artist and a DJ and, and running shows, like uh, working in various roles in the music industry and also traveling, having the immense privilege of being able to travel around for music for nearly 20 years, as, whether that's as an artist or as, a, as something else, and meet a lot of different people and hear a lot of different people's stories and their stories of their experiences with the scene. Um, and, and that makes me feel a bit more comfortable having a critical opinion. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's a conversation that people, keep, that, that people need to keep having because writers are valid, but 
like maybe an artist as a writer. You know, I encourage people to write all the time because I was encouraged to write as someone who wasn't trained to write. Okay, so you're so bas- so basically you're saying that you have you have um, that that divide was a was a, a personal yeah. thing for you and you've overcome that. Galter, yeah. what do you think? Because you're an artist, but you're not a, you're not a music writer. You're the you're the one person in this conversation that isn't a music writer. Yeah. So what 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 do you think about the how, what's your take on on music journalists in general? Well, like how you mentioned, uh, kind of you started off as a fan. Like I also start off as a fan. Like I really, um, I feel really nostalgic about the days where I used to go to the bookstore and just check out all the magazines and like you know try and find something just based on reading that I would like, you know, just based on like the description of the review or interview or whatever, like check out, um, you know, like old wire or URB or accelerator, like way back in the day in like the nineties. And like, I don't know. I think nowadays journalism is a little more complex because, um, you know, there, people don't just review records based on the sound quality anymore or like the the music itself. There's like Lisa was saying, there's like the context behind everything. There's like the cultural context and there's like the biography of the musician and all these all these all this new information that a journalist can glean from either seeing like a, a musician's social media profile or reading their bio like super easy. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like I, I also wanted to ask you about Boomcat because <laughs> I think Boomcat, like reading the reviews, they're very focused on like the sound of the record. I've noticed. Oh, like like yeah. when you yeah like when you when you when you read a uh, Boomcat review, it's more it's more from the perspective of like uh, um, someone in a store like telling you. You know, like if you go to a real record store and you're like, what's up with this record? And they'll say, oh, it's like this, you know, mangled, like trippy, like they don't really talk about who the artist is or like where they're from necessarily. Um, you're, you're completely right. And, and, and yeah, that that was probably purposeful. Like I started at Boomcat in the early 2000s. Um, like they had a massive, massive, massive um impact on me i would not be here speaking to you right now if it wasn't for for um boomcat uh shlom severi who runs boomcat used to run a um stall in birmingham where uh, where where i'm from or just i'm from just outside birmingham and i used to go to shows and hassle them when they were selling records and you know be mouthy and weird and and the person that I am uh, and over time they you know I'd give them CDRs and we'd chat a lot and then they they gave me a job out of school which was really 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 helpful and I developed my voice there uh, and at that time I was quite young and I was definitely approaching music from an aesthetic point of view Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was taking signals and I was from a, a really shit area of the UK and had a really specific experience. And the signals that I was listening for were super specific, but I wasn't going deeper into the context. I definitely wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was definitely coming from that record store mentality. And I know why, because uh, my dad's a big record collector. Like he, I grew up at rec- in record stores and at, at record fairs buying like the records from the dollar bin 
just because the cover looked good or whatever. For, for, like, before I could talk, I was already at record fairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, that made sense to me, communicating with the world and understanding the world through music on an aesthetic level without sort of talking to the artists or understanding where they're coming from because I'd never really met any artists. Fuck me, you don't, you, you know, you, you, you meet human beings who have an experience, but they don't have the confidence or the, the privilege or, or the, the resources to actually take it to the next level. And when I started to get more of a, a footing in the scene and have all these experience that in, experiences that broke my world completely and introduced me to a lot more ways of thinking, uh, my writing definitely changed and the way I approached music really, really changed. Um, and I've gone more away from that um, sort of writing about the aesthetic of something the longer I've been around. And, you know, at this point in, in my writing, I don't really care about aesthetic as much as I used to. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. if, if at all. <laughs> but, I, 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 like, I see its value, but where, where my head's at now, it's, it's way, way, way way less important. Okay, so no, I wonder I mean, that's, if that's also a consequence of, um, of living in a quote-unquote more connected society. It's definitely a consequence of that. Absolutely. And, I try, and, and you know, aesthetic used to be really, really important as well, I think, and how, or let's say, how a record sounds, because you couldn't hear it. When I started at Boomcat, yeah, you could, you could get some of these records on Soulseek or whatever, but most of it you couldn't... Like, that clip on Boomcat was all you were going to hear. yeah. With the with that with that classic ooh sound, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Shouts to Boomcat, we love you. Um, yes, yeah. I yeah I okay. So it's that's a, it's it's an interesting interesting uh, leap there because you're because you're talking about how your personal um, relationship with uh, of writing about music, even though the first the f- the first place you were writing about music wasn't necessarily a critical outlet, but it was actually a, a store. Um, yes, it was. Um, and, and, and now it's becoming a, a more writing as a, as a more social exercise, let's say, just, just to have a word. But, um, so which, and I would, and, and you're correct in, in that uh, people didn't used to be able to hear this stuff, and now pretty much... Everybody has access to music more or less at the same time. Journalists used to get music way in advance, but they don't yeah. really anymore. So, so this is another way that um, that that has that music writing. The function of music writing changes because why do you necessarily have to describe the music in detail when the person can listen to it often on a click on the same page? Exactly, exactly. And I think about that all the time. Um, having edited so many reviews as well as written so many reviews, you, you start reading reviews like, why are you telling me about how this drum sounds? You know, like it's right there. I know. Give me more than <laughs> that. You know, show, I want a writer to show me why they're writing about something and to give me some kind of insight that I'm like, oh, wow, fuck, I'm never going to listen to that in the same way again. Or like, I wouldn't have known that otherwise. Well, That's sort of exemplary of like facts too, because you guys never really do reviews. I mean, there's like end of the year lists or whatever, yeah. But there's no just like reviews themselves. Yeah. And I like reviews. Don't get me wrong, but I, I firstly we we stopped doing reviews because no one was reading them, um, as, as as well as the fact that I thought they were starting to that like the review format was starting to get a bit stale. 
Um, but I, I do want us to find a way collectively uh, to get reviews back. But I think the idea of the review needs to kind of change. It needs to act more of a more as a, an archival. Uh, like document, if you like, with with way more context and maybe more collaboration with the artist and and the label, or or just just more tangible um, facts about the uh, the the item itself that you can't get from sticking uh, from pressing play on Spotify or whatever. You know, Galter, I think I th I thought it was interesting that you mentioned about how your um, origins were quite similar. In, in in this sense as starting as a fan and starting out reading magazines in bookstore reading music magazines specifically in bookstores and I think all of us are, are old enough that that would have been the way that we that we started out um, completely but uh, Galcher do you think that as an artist now operating now that music journalism is still relevant for you this is more or less the same question but directed to you now yeah, um, I don't know. To me now, it's kind of more like, you know, I try and avoid it a bit. Like, it feels like keeping up with the Joneses to me now, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like, and it, it and it's also sort of a form of entertainment. Um, and like, uh, that whole video aspect speaks to that, like, totally, like, you know, watching an Against the Clock video is fun. It's fun to see, like, other artists process or, like, watching. I'm thinking about how other um, magazines mm -hmm. do video content. It's basically like a documentary or, um, or like, a mix, a uh, live stream of a mix or something like that, like Boiler Room or, or Mix Mag Lab or whatever. So, it's it, yeah, it's strange, like... You know, there's very every once in a while I do read an article that that really resonates with me, like. But it, it yeah, it usually has to do with like investigative journalism. Like for example, um, you know, talking about specific scenes and like mm -hmm. interviewing people and just kind of going in depth with something that you couldn't you couldn't parse yourself. You know, mm -hmm. like it, it would need to, it would need to you know it needs to be synthesized. Like you're saying, an archive. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, mm. like learning about something that happened like five or ten years ago and getting a new spin on it or whatever um, and just seeing where you where you might fit in with that or whether it relates to you or not or maybe it'll inspire me to like you know try something out in the community or with my own work or whatever so yeah I mean it's kind of I'm kind of like half in half out with it with as far as reviews and stuff I try and not look at any reviews because if a review's up that means people are reading it that means people got the track that means it's like rinsed already you know what I mean? <laughs> hmm, interesting that's kind of how I feel about it okay wow. it's, well it's it's it, okay it's interesting that you both um, are, are talking about how these about journalism is as artifacts or, or sort of historical documents do either of you still use music journalism as a way to find out about new music yes I do for not not house and techno, but for everything else. Okay, you. I guess yeah. you don't have to for house and techno because you already have access to so many of those musicians directly. Uh, and I just like like to dig. I just like to dig for weird stuff. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that so way. that means that there that music journalism is still relevant then because uh, because people are still using it to find out about new music. Yeah. They're just not reading about it. Yeah. I mean, I use music journalism 
I mean, I, and I talk to music journalists and I ask people for recommendations and I try to, to understand what people are listening to all the time. But that's also like my job to keep up with not just the scene that that I'm directly involved with, but I, I need to know the temperature of, of everything else just so I know what's going on. And, and I can mm-hmm. see more clearly the reflections and how things are uh, influencing from the scene that I'm in and how, and how things are being influenced by scenes from outside the one that I'm in. Well, that, so it really uh, helps for me. That to read music goes along with my theory that the only people that read music journalism are music journalists. But I do, I, I do think you're you're onto something there. But uh, um, sure. it's also curators read it. Curators okay. of festivals, trust me. Right. Okay. What's <laughs> um, the curator versus journalist nowadays, though? You know, like no, no difference. No difference, yeah. Okay. One of the music gets paid more, and it's not the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting to to feel this this uh, shift in um, in the the landscape of of music journalism because it preceded a shift in in the landscape of what it means to be an artist as well. Like the, the, the whole, the whole thing about the industry, the bottom of the, the, you know, the bottom falling out of, of music journalism as it did for journalism in general, or, or, or it is in the process of doing for music journalism or for journalism in general, mm-hmm. you could say that that's, that's also happening for artists the, the, you know, obviously the, 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 the shift to digital is, has affected so many industries the finances of so many industries and that's a larger discussion that's being addressed by other people but um i want to go back to what you were talking about of of how you you know your your line that everybody is an artist yeah and while i don't necessarily agree with that now we've talked about this actually yes we but, have but um i do but i do agree that everybody that we're all involved in this and when I say all of us, I'm, I don't just mean, you know, the artists uh, who are making music and the music journalists who are writing the music, but the listener as well and the people who are attending the parties and the punters. So and, and that, that this but that this is a this is a, a big ecosystem that um, that involves that involves everybody who participates somehow. Yeah, and everybody, everybody, like people's families, people's friends, like the emotional labor that goes into every piece of art is also part of the art. Um, and, and there's an artistry to being able to, you know, talk to an artist in some way and focus their thoughts. There's so many different ways to be a part of the end result. Um, and I don't think that's talked about enough by any means. I, I think people need to be included in 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 whatever this is and whatever this represents socially. I don't think there's any any use in anybody uh, making this an exclusive thing for a certain sort of person or people. How does that factor in with like what you decide to cover at, at Facts? Because I noticed that, you know, while it's primarily uh, electronic music, you also do like some hip hop and grime mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. indie and stuff like that like i don't know like is it just a group decision or is it just kind of what everybody's feeling at the moment or okay so when i started um tom lee who runs local action was the uh, editor and he had been editing for a little while when i started and he used to run a grime blog i believe i seem uh, my memory is so fucked um but he, he definitely 
was coming at it from an angle where he was wanting to cover uh, what was happening in London and grime and whatnot. And that was a big part of the site for a very long time. And, uh, you know, it's what drew me towards fact in the first place. You know, there was a, there was a crossover from what I used to cover at Boomcat and what was ended up being covered at fact. So, you know, I felt like it was the, it was a magazine that I read because of that. The rap coverage six years ago was truly embarrassing and, <laughs> and I was living in the US and you know where you, working, where you still live now we should actually find out where I still live now yeah um, and they were looking for a US writer and I'd done one or two reviews for them before usually of, of rap stuff and when I started working on editorial I was like look there's, there's all this stuff happening and I feel like it's in the context of electronic music this is this needs to be covered in just with just the same amount of, of, of vigor as um, all the stuff coming out from Europe uh, because it's changing electronic music and the kids are making music differently using these tools etc cetera, etc cetera. and thankfully I was right and it, it did change the way electronic music sounded and it was important to cover at that at, at that exact point um, uh, and I think differentiating music with genre can be can can certainly be important but it can also lead to stuff getting left out because it's uh more difficult to uh talk about like you know nobody wanted to talk about rap in the same terms as as electronic music because it felt too distant for a lot of writers Mm. um and they didn't see the parallels or similarities between what was happening within uh an american dance music scene that they didn't really understand because I mean rap is still dance music Mm -hmm. Uh, and the sort of uh, techno uh, third wave techno and and bass scene uh, that was happening in Europe or whatever or whenever uh, Atlanta rap was really bubbling up and booming in the late 2000s Um, it's it's all part of the same conversation to me and we've had different editors who have prioritized different things. Like the indie thing was not really for me, um, but the editor at the time was, was, was more into uh, that stuff, which was, you know, what, which was what it was. So yeah. short answer is it's the whims of the editor. Um, it can be. I'm quite forceful in certain things. And even when I haven't been the editor, I've been a very shouty uh, uh, person saying we need to cover this or we we should prioritize things from outside london uh, new york la berlin um because people need to feel included um like and part of that is because i didn't feel included coming from where i came from in the uk it's interesting i i actually am thinking again about what you said about how uh or, or about how the goals are changing in terms of in terms of um, music journalism. So, uh, what the the goals are changing, and also the demographics of of who music journalists are is changing because uh, it, there's so little money in it. So most yeah. people can't really afford to do it. Yeah. Uh, most professionals can't really afford to do it, and that means that it's left to people who are either only just starting out or don't need the income because of because they're students maybe or some other kind of reason 
And again, that would imply that they're only just starting out. And, and, and I think this is one of the things that is, is changing uh, music journalism a lot now. I agree. Like, um, I, like I want more and more people, and especially more and more young people, to feel confident in writing about music. But people do age out really quickly because it's almost impossible to keep a roof over your head. Um, and that is an issue. Which and what the the implication is is then um, there's it's no longer something that that's there's any experts in it, which is a complaint that we we touched on earlier. So um, how do what what's the is there any is there any solution to that? I mean, you're talking to the wrong person. Like I'm I'm really only here because I have such a a a weird lifestyle and, and and outlook that I'm. Um, well, let's just say that you're, you're say here this? because you're a staffer, because that's the, I am here that's, because I'm that's, a, I'm a, the, that's the I'm only job that's viable for if, if you want to be a professional music journalist. You really, it's you can't really make it freelance. You you have to be a staffer. So, yeah, I wouldn't be able to make it freelance if I you know if I lost my job, I'd be homeless within a month. Yeah, and that, and, and not not many people my age want to live like that. Exactly. And, and I totally understand that. I, I I get it. I'd love some stability. I'm just I only know music. So, you know, this is a way I've worked out to keep a roof over my head. So, um, is the, but so, um, so would, would you say that that is something that results in a watering down of the conversation? Because yes, okay. yeah, but it needed, but it also needed to be watered down. And, oh, you, yeah, <laughs> like, you think so? Well, there, there was a lot of like um, experts building their castles and not letting anyone in. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that's good either. And like a lot of these so-called experts never deconstruct their own experience to a point where they can be self-critical enough that they're useful. Like it's great knowing stuff for archival purposes. But then what if you're sort of lording over your knowledge and stopping people from uh, like making intellectual leaps or whatever or coming up with a different way of looking at something that's actually quite important and actually quite interesting then yes there needs to be experts but there also needs to be plenty of plenty of young people and uh, uh, people of, of uh, basically at any point of their life feeling empowered to comment on the experience that they're having with music okay so so it sounds like you're saying two things and one is one is uh, the the about the gatekeeper argument yeah. And and the other is about just in general making things more making uh, voices more pluralistic and more de- democratic. Yeah, yeah, but I, well, I mean, dem- democratic to a point. Um, I mean, right, de- exactly. Like you. It's, sorry, go ahead. It, it, I mean, basically, I'm not anti. I mean, I'm a little bit anti expertise, but I'm not anti like doing something and 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 sharing that with and and doing it for a long time and uh you getting quote unquote better at what you're doing i suppose but if you're if you're getting better in a a vacuum and you're not evolving and uh talking with people multi-generationally and uh like criticizing yourself and what you do what fucking use are you you know the world's changing the way we are consuming changes so the way we criticize has to change as well what do you think the short-term forecast is for music journalism? I mean, the short-term forecast for society on the whole is pretty bad. I don't <laughs> think music, music journalism is quite... Lisa, I, I, please don't say um, 
what I, what what you said in the last episode. I'm not <laughs> going to. But uh, okay. what is it? What did, I'm just ta- I'm just thinking about like what is we're talking we're talking about what is the present state of music journalism. Now I'm wondering what's the future of music journalism. I want to hope um, that we'll find a way to support more people. There needs to be a lot more money in it. There needs to be a lot more resources. Like. With resources, uh, monetary resources, there are lots of things that we could do to make music journalism better and to bring it into a new age. But there's no money. Um, The biggest amount of money uh, or resource, uh, the biggest resource pool I think we had in music journalism was our Red Bull, right? That'd be fair. You know more about Red Bull than I do, Lisa. Um, In terms of who was putting money and paying journalists and all that kind of thing? yeah, or paying the most, the biggest sort of pool for this this scene. Mm, probably, yeah, that's probably accurate. Um, and without that, there's almost nothing. But if we want to make interviews better, say artist interviews, nobody reads them because um, the artist interview has turned into a kind of repetitive PR exercise. It's just a one sheet, like regurgitated in 15 minutes between the artist and a journalist. Who knows if the artist really knows what they're talking about because they're just parroting something and who knows if the journalist knows what they're talking about or even listening to. Like if there was more resources, maybe uh, the artist and journalist could spend a week together and you could really get to know an actual human being, process, emotions, all of these things that people actually might want to read about. But we wouldn't know because we don't have any uh, resources to fund that kind of uh, excursion. Okay. This, I, yeah. Unfortunately, that seems like the answer to everything is everything just needs more money put into it, and then it, and and then it will all be better. But I guess, but there's no, you know, there's no sign of that happening anytime soon. So. <laughs> Maybe Monster Energy will uh, decide. To happen, <laughs> you know what I'm and like, like, but even even then, if a brand was like, I'm going to be a, a, a benefactor, like, what what would that mean, and what would that do to the scene, and how would that change the way people related? Uh, to the scene to try and grab that money or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's interesting because we, we have determined that there is still value, some value left in music journalism for, for you guys, for me as well. I didn't say so, but I, I agree, actually. <laughs> and, uh, um, but obviously, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a tr- it's a tricky proposition. There's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, a lot of obstacles to overcome here, and um, but I, and I agree with you that I think that that uh, things are in flux, and so therefore the industry has to adapt. Yeah, and I, I, like say tomorrow there were no more music journalists, people would still be talking about music, and then find a way to communicate in a in a in a way and 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 share what they're experiencing and what they're listening to and what they're excited about. Yeah, sure. Like it, it, it will find a way, and we will work out a way to communicate our experiences better. Uh, this is this is just a massive shift. Well, one 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 thing you said earlier, um, and this is actually a, a, a viewpoint that I agree with. You talked about how um, about how gatekeepers can actually. It, it, like basically, the 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 reductionist argument would be that um, music journalists can actually help shape the music somehow whether by being a gatekeeper and not allowing some people in or so to speak (laughs) or in in some in some other manner and um 
you know, so it's not, it's not just reportage. No, it is. It is actually, it is actually having some sort of like palpable effect on something, even if you have to really dig into, dig down deep to, to, to be able to understand the nuance of that. Um, and Gaucher, what do you think? Do you think, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I just, I'm just thinking about for a moment when we were talking about the future of, of journalism, I was thinking, you know, how podcasts are kind of coming into a, a new wave right now, mm-hmm. like for this, yeah. this one, for instance. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's also like, I don't know, I would just hope that there's like these grassroots movements that kind of start to crop up and and um, and each each movement or each like niche will kind of determine what's valuable for themselves and like push push whatever it is like, say, these people in this country or in this scene decide that they're into like. Um, you know, it could be an aesthetic thing. It could be a cultural thing. It could be like a political thing. But that's sort of the gatekeeping that happens. I mean, I think there will always be gatekeeping and there will always be like people like favoriting, having like favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I don't know. I, I can't imagine true. a world without gatekeepers. I yeah. can't imagine like music or art without gate, uh, some type of gatekeeping or like or like. And how that's actually favoritism. a useful function. Yeah, it can be it can be useful. I guess it's useful for those that it helps and then it's like a pain in the ass for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I I I never know whether it's useful or not. Like quite to be quite honest. I mean, ideologically, I always think no, it's completely not useful. Like I'm try, I try to imagine like uh, an art or cultural world without that at all. So everything just exists and people can pick and choose as, as they want. And the problem with the, the society that we've got at the moment is our, our flow of information is obscured. So we rely on gatekeepers to say what's truthful or, or, or you know, a load of fucking old bollocks. Uh, uh, I actually and- feel that that's, I actually feel that that's um, less of a problem now with the, with the, with the amount of information that's available. The, the, the bigger problem now is we don't have time to sift through all this. And so we rely on, on, uh, sources that, that they're not gatekeepers, they're propagandists. Yes. And they, yeah, they just, it's like the attention economy. Argument, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, it, I, I do think it's a prescription against this, a, a specific system. Like at the moment, yeah, we 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 are going to need certain gatekeepers, um, in to uh, medicate against this poisonous fucking system. Um, ideally, in a utopian society, it wouldn't be necessary. Right. But also, but also in a, in a dystopian society, it won't be necessary. You know, when when Spotify is algorithmically generating us music to our taste, it, that. It, the gatekeepers won't be needed for that either. <laughs> what, I kind of want to like circle back real quick because um, can we talk for a second about type records? Oh yeah, sure. So <laughs> can, you, can you like just describe that for a moment, like w- what it is and and you know where it's at and FYI, well, listener, I, type records is the label that John ran. Yeah, yeah. I, I I did it um, basically when I was making music and touring as an artist in the early 2000s, I was getting people, people were giving me CDRs wherever I went. 
and like, oh, you've got to listen to this. You know, other artists, you, before it was a we transfer link, it was a CDR. And I'd give these to friends and I bumped into a person in Birmingham who was a bit older, oh, a bit older than I was and a bit more experienced and a bit more, um, had much more confidence than I did. Like I never thought I would run a record label. I thought it was something that rich people did. Uh, and thanks to this, uh, Steph, Stefan Lewandowski, who uh, I started type with, I had this, uh, resource or like validation that that was something that I could do. And, uh, the Boomcat people helped facilitate that and make that uh, a reality. Uh, and I got to release a bunch of music with Steph and, uh, then on my own, uh, that, sort of reflected my taste and the people that I met through the industry and, and the things that I was excited about and the things that Steph was excited about as well. Um, and yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. Like I, I, I don't know if I would run a record label now. Um, like I'm doing a, a release on type this year, but, um, it's, it's a release from my old, uh, best friend from art school uh arash murray mm -hmm. uh, and that so that's like a very personal thing that pertains to me and him uh and and like if i think if i was trying to run it like i used to with like a, a release almost every month firstly i wouldn't have time because i do fact all the time and secondly it would be sort of odd having doing editorial and doing the same thing with a record label basically i don't know like conflict of interest, maybe? Sort so, so of, but conflict of mental clarity, maybe. Mm. <laughs> the, the one, like, the, the funny anomaly, well, like, from my perspective, so I was roommates for a while with Jeff Mullen. Oh, yeah, love um, Jeff. Love yeah, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, and so I was kind of familiar with the label for a while. Um, but at one point, um, you guys kind of like took a weird left turn and and put out like Clams Casino, and yeah. main and like main attractions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you know, from all the kind of more experimental ambient stuff, all of a sudden you like put out these two like heavy kind of hip hop like real drugged out hip hop records. Um, yeah. How like, you know, coming from like a label owner you know, who has like a big cachet from like an underground community. Like, how did that get received? Did you, did you, I mean, you know, cause you were kind of gatekeeping um, from one direction to another. Like you were getting the hip hop people into experimental and the experimental mm -hmm. people into hip hop. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that, how did that all like, you know, like how did that materialize and what was the result? Like, was it a, was it a positive result? And, and did you think it was like successful and kind of, uh, bringing new ideas to the table and interesting great question like uh, so like hip-hop's one of these things that's been like a, a it's a it's a total cliche you know the white kid from like uh sort of feeling alienated and uh jumping into a a, a a style from another country that you can get sort of nerdy and and uh collectory about but it was it was something I was so passionate about at, at moving from high school into university and and uh, like as a fan as as someone who was like playing rap records and R and B records 
uh, along with like ambient and experimental and IDM and techno and all sorts of anything else that was coming out. It felt like part of the same conversation. Uh, when I moved to the US, I suddenly had access to a load of different artists who I was talking to, who I was communicating with, who I was spending time with. Because I, you know, I'm out all the time. I go and go see as as many like shows as I can. Always have done. So I'm like seeing and experiencing things as they happen. And you start meeting people and you start making connections. And I was doing, I think, with the Clams Casino, I was obsessed with Little B. Yeah. And I was writing press releases for him for a bit because uh, I used to do odd jobs for people and whatnot and uh, I heard a few tracks of his that had this producer I hadn't heard of Clams Casino it's like this this sounds fucking fantastic like what and he, he sampled a record that I almost put out so there's this album by Jonas Monk uh, manual called I think it's called The North Shore and it's got this beautiful ambient track on and I I remember having a really bad period in my life and listening to it again and again and again. And it was a demo and I was like, I've got to, re I've got to release this on type. But it never got released. I can't, I can't remember why. It ended up coming out on Dala, a US label. Uh, but I heard this Clams track and it had a sample of this track I've listened to a thousand times. Crazy. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is the perfect blend. This is everything I want to hear. And got in touch with um, with Clams and was like, yeah, like, this. I think, I think this is brilliant. Like, would you want to put any of this on vinyl? And he said, yeah. Um, and then I uh, started making music with Walker Chambliss, who I made music as Jack Dice with. As. Okay. Um, uh, and he was managing my attractions, and I was already a fan. Uh, I was, and I, I genuinely think 808s two, the mixtape that we that I did a vinyl release of, is like such such a such such a fucking influential record. I mean, the 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 traces of that record are all over contemporary rap. Yeah, uh, and and. I, I was just so astonished by it at the time, at the clarity of the, the vision, like the amount of ideas that they were, they were throwing into that. I, I mean, it was really, really, really selfish because I just wanted it on vinyl. But that was one I was just like, I would like this album on vinyl. I will do what, to, what it takes to put it out. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, I, I was feeling that at, this, at the time too. Like I was a huge Lil B fan and like all the, all the like quote unquote cloud rap stuff yeah. was just like exactly what I wanted to hear at the time. Um, it's cool hearing the backstory, man. Thank you. No worries. Like uh, absolute pleasure. Like it, 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 but all this stuff, all these developments came from fandom really, to be mm -hmm. quite honest. Like I'm, I'm still obsessed with music. I still listen to music all day, every day, um, and all night because I'm out. <laughs> I'm a fan first and foremost. I cool. probably true of all of us. Okay, John. Well, you do know that the name of this podcast is Real Life Rave Confessions. Yeah. So I wondered if you had one you wanted to share with us. Yeah. You I go mean, out a lot, so I'm, I'm sure some things have happened to you over the years. That's the thing, and I've been talking about this in the last couple of weeks since you asked me to do this um, with a bunch of different people, and it's 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 really hard. I'm quite open, and I've had a lot of embarrassing experiences, and I was thinking if I was to confess a really embarrassing experience, it would have to involve me playing because I've played so many shit shows, like really completely shit, 
Um, and the feeling of crushing, like, life soul-destroying embarrassment is never more than when you've played a really shit show and then you have to apologize to all your friends for being shit. Um, so, like, that would probably be, like, the, the confessional of all. But, like, I, I decided to hone in on a, on, on a specific one that involves me playing a shit show, uh, but also um, it's quite funny as well. So, like, a few years ago, I maybe 2004, 2005, um, I was playing at the Big Chill Festival, which yeah. might sound abhorrent uh, to you. And it, it, I mean, honestly, it is. Uh, and I, firstly, this is actually quite a good one because I spend my life at music festivals now. I fucking hated music festivals. Like I lived in like bars and clubs and music festival just seemed like a complete insane thing to me. And I went to the Big Chill and it was a bunch of hippies and like play areas and... I don't fucking know. It it blew my mind, uh, and I got so fucking drunk. Like I'm, I mean, I, I'm an alcoholic, I'm sober alcoholic, and this was at a point where my drinking was not at its worst, but it was definitely uh, getting to that point. And when I was in a situation that would make me very anxious, like at a festival full of hippies, uh, I I would just drink, drink through it, uh, and I started drinking in the morning. And it was incredibly sunny and there was no shade. And I was just watching all this music like with uh, a few friends. And I had to play like most of the night on uh, one of these stages far off in the woods or something, play ambient music. I think I was playing live and DJing because it was like hours and hours and hours I had to do. So I was out all day in the sun getting fucking wasted. Um, and then at the point of my most drunkenness, I went to see MJ Cole. I was like, finally, something I actually want to see. MJ Cole is playing. And and Floating Points. This was when Floating Points had just released. I think he'd only released the Planet Mew 12 inch at that point. So really, really early. He played a set of like all white label garage and it was fucking brilliant. And then MJ Cole played. And I like rushed the backstage. Like completely, I was so wasted that I remembered I was drinking two bottles of wine and I don't even drink wine. It's only when everything else is left, like gone, that I, I would ever do that. And he was, he was completely sober and I was like, oh fuck, I love your music. I really want to put an album out on type. He was like, what? Who are you? He was like, Did you? He was like have you got any copies of uh, Dragging a Dead Deer Up a Hill by Grouper? I was like, well, uh, funny you should mention that. It has sold out, but I will give you one if you'll do an album for time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I think I may have vomited, like, like almost straight after that, like completely, completely embarrassing myself. But that was, this This was still not the story. So then I go and fucking play all night. Like, I don't know what the fuck I played. Absolutely no fucking idea. But I woke up in the morning covered in, like, fluid. Like, I was like, my face and my body was, was like, wet. And I was like, what the fuck happened last night? It's the middle of the day, the next day. I'm in a tent with a friend. All this condensation in the tent. So I'm like, oh, it's just, like, sweat, condensation, uh, whatever. I start walking around trying to like orient orient myself, and like I keep touching my face and it's still wet. It won't dry. I'm like what the fuck is going on here? I finally find a mirror, and realise that I was out in the sun for so long and I'm extremely pale, redhead, 
Um, I'd blistered and all my skin had turned into blisters on my face and head. Damn. And I, was, I, was, I was literally covered in pus. Uh. Uh, and that is how to have a really fucking embarrassing experience. Wow. That... And I was in pain for weeks afterwards. <laughs> wow. Okay. But appa- apparently my set was okay because we did a mix from this guy, Cesare. S-Z-A-R-E, Czar, Manchester guy. And he was like, oh, are you the John who, like, did the Zella stuff? Oh, I saw you, like, play at the Big Chill a few years ago all night, and I was having a really bad time and found that stage, and it really put me in a good place and, like, helped me out. And I was like, okay, so after all that, like, I've had this nightmare of this event in my head for so long, and someone had a good time. So... (laughs) Job, job done. <laughs> job done t- to great personal expense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for speaking with us about this tricky topic, which I'm not sure we came to any real answers here. But um, I, for me, actually, we we did we did establish that there there is still value in music journalism, which I think is important. I think there's value in people uh, and and people sharing their experiences. Absolutely, yeah. She like that, blowin' smoke up to the moon. Don't think I wanna come back, 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 back. Got that AK that go black. I put your bitch on my back. Uh huh. I bet she like that. She like that. She like that. Blowin' smoke up to the moon. Don't think I wanna come back, back. Drinking forties, forties, forties. Watch me rap. Swear I thought y'all knew that I'm a mini motherfucker. Steady rapping by my spots. Fuck a zebra and a leopard. I'm just tryna bounce. Trying to pounce on whoever got the drugs Follow me to my house, I already got the jack Throwing dice, try your luck DJs love me on these beats Henny drinks, getting crunk Yeah, I don't think I slam dunk, but I do I got hops, dirty tires, that's my props And your girl Ali pops and see how quick that pussy go pop Rubber bands on my 